Good evening and welcome to the second week of Lent. Uh, tonight we have uh, our special guest stars, Deborah and Martin Leggett. Uh, they are new parishioners here in our parish. We are glad to have them with us tonight. We are looking at chapters four, five, and six in Mark. And uh, as we mentioned last week, we are reading from uh, the Common English Bible, um, which is a uh, it is one of the uh, translations that we uh, use officially in the Episcopal Church, the newest of them. And uh, it's a good modern translation. For if you hear things differently, um, that's intentional. We want you to listen with new ears. Um, some of the things that are going to come up are Jesus is not called the son of man. He's called the human one and a few other things because he was the quintessential human. And they were trying to say that um, in a way that uh, was closer and a better translation. Literally, it is son of man, but culturally, it's the quintessential human. So things like that. So we'll be unpacking that as we go through tonight. Um, but we're going to divide it up into 10 different readings tonight. Um, and the first reading is uh, starts us off in chapter four of Mark. And our first reader is Deborah. So take it away. It's all you. Jesus began to teach beside the lake again. Such a large crowd gathered that he climbed into a boat there on the lake. He sat in the boat while the whole crowd was nearby on the shore. He said many things to them in parallel in parables. Parables. While teaching them, he said, listen to this. A farmer went out to scatter seed. As he was scattering seed, some fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where the soil was shallow. They sprouted immediately because the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it scorched the plants and they dried up because they had no roots. Other seed fell among thorny plants. The thorny plants grew and choked the seeds and they produced nothing. Other seed fell into good soil and bore fruit. Upon growing and increasing, the seed produced, in one case, a yield of 30 to 1, in another case, a yield of 60 to 1, and in another case, a yield of 100 to 1. He said, whoever has ears to listen should pay attention. Thank you. So what uh, shimmered for you? What jumped out from uh, our first reading? I think for me, what jumped out as I was reading it over and over again was the understanding that when the seed falls on the shallow soil, it just immediately sprouts and looks very promising. But there's there's nothing deep to hold it. Just those words shallow and the soil wasn't deep enough. That's that's so clear what it means. Mm. And um, I've, I've always wondered about that, but it came very clear to me today. Yeah. It's sad that we have to use that term to describe people sometimes. <laughs> so, yes. Ever since Sunday school days, I've liked this story or this um account because it reminded me of growing up on a farm where seeds were seeds and you didn't pay much attention to the different kinds of seeds but what it, what you did notice sometimes was 
that you were too enthusiastic for it to all work in different environments, that you didn't take care to plant the seed in the really best place. But um, it strikes me that Jesus has a pretty savvy agricultural audience here. Mm-hmm. It's not a story that you'd tell to any person, I don't think, in the, these terms. Context is important. Farmers talking. I was struck by um, the, the setting, um, the visual of it, Jesus standing in a boat with the water behind him, the crowd on the land. And I remember reading through um, Mark once in a Bible study at Richmond Hill that met once a week. And um, and the, the readings all took on this visual quality. I was just very aware of the setting. Um, so the Sermon on the Mount, for example, was given on a mountain. Um, but Jesus is giving parables standing on the water, so to speak. Um, it, it somehow is part of it. Um, he's explaining something mysterious, and the setting seems right for that. Um, don't quite know where, what, it, what else to do with that. Um, One of my favorite sort of images is when I go to the beach to look out at the horizon where the ocean meets the sky. And it seems like I'm looking at the two realities that human life lives right on the razor edge between. The ocean being the mystery of where we came from and the sky being the mystery of where we are going to. And we live right at that thin momentary edge between past and future. Um, And these parables seem to me to have something to do with mystery and, um, and sort of the story that God is writing. Um, I think it's, I, I noticed the last sentence, whoever has ears to listen should pay attention. That's, that's a fairly authoritarian um, command. And uh, that caught my attention. And I thought, and I'm trying to understand what Jesus' human personality is like. And he's coming across as a very strong, a strong young man with very, very um, authoritarian affect. Mm-hmm. And he repeatedly gets accused of speaking with authority. Mm-hmm. That's what we came out with in last week's um, study. Uh, and that shocked people, mm-hmm. which I find fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. Is this think- something new or not? Yeah. Well, passion, he's very passionate. Mm-hmm. And that, I think it's more almost that than, than mean-spirited. It's, right. it's the passion. I'm with you, Deborah, on that one. Um, it, like, he's saying, listen, pay attention. But the story on its surface is so dead simple. Yes. It seems to have no depth. It's just 
it's it's um but I find um there's gotta be depth in it or Jesus wouldn't have said pay attention. Um it's almost a warning. And it has that this nursery rhyme then meets the eye. Yeah, there's a warning in it. He's he's telling us to be careful about this, the simplicity of it. Mm-hmm. In a way. Well, someone who gets paid to speak for a living, you know, it's a always this one is always a good reminder to me, is that not everybody's gonna listen. Not everybody's gonna be accepting. Some of the most enthusiastic are the first ones to fall off. Play the long game. That's where real change, that's where real growth happens. Yeah. There's a, as simplistic as it is, there's still plenty here to unpack. Yeah. Anything else? I was also struck by the perspective um, of Jesus. It's it's like he's looking down on humanity, not mm-hmm. out on humanity. This is what humanity looks like from God's perspective. Um, I never would have come up with a story like this to explain God's workings in in human history, um, because my perspective is very different. Mm-hmm. I'm glad one of you commented on the location of the boat and the lake, because I, I love these these passages when they introduce ordinary things that you can imagine. And um, we were just looking at a Wikipedia article about the Sea of Galilee to try to understand where it was and how big it was. And there was a piece of information there about an archaeologist or somebody who discovered what they call a Galilee boat. Um, just a few years ago, in in recent times, and um, it was it's nicknamed the Jesus boat because it's similar to not much has changed in the boats on this lake and the fishing from that day to this. So I always enjoy a piece of the Bible that you can link to something here and now. Mm-hmm. Certainly can do with this one. My Boy Scout. Um, uh, reservation uh, where our, our region met um, they had a little uh, lake and there was a little cove and they had a platform in the middle of the lake so that the hills made a natural amphitheater mm. and so this floating dock you know was a great place as the stage and then we could all just gather around and we could all hear um, wow and you know, very much like what we're talking about here that's very biblical. Yeah. Well, we also looked um, at the mileage of the lake, and it's 30 miles long, and it's about seven or eight miles across. And so um, there, there's a lot of traffic on that lake, I imagine, because of the towns that are on it. So when he goes across from one side to the other, it's not a small matter, is it? It's a, this is a big lake. Mm-hmm. We would never call it a sea these days, but mm-hmm. you know, back in those times, when right. you're a wandering uh, desert nomad and you find, oh, that's a sea, that's huge. Right. 
For us, it's the size of a lake, yeah. Well, good. Martin, you want to take uh, reading two? They're tied together pretty closely, so I think we can keep our conversation unified that way. There we go. When they were alone, the people around Jesus, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. He said to them, The secret of God's kingdom has been given to you, but to those who are outside, everything comes in parables. This is so that they can look and see but have no insight. They can hear but not understand. Otherwise, they might turn their lives around and be forgiven. Don't you understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? The farmer scatters this, the word. This is the meaning of the seed that fell on the path. When the word is scattered and people hear it, right away Satan comes and steals the word that was planted in them. Here's the meaning of the seed that fell on rocky ground. When people hear the word, they immediately receive it joyfully. Because they have no roots, they last for only a little while. When they experience distress or abuse because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like the seeds scattered among the thorny plants. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of this life, the false appeal of wealth, and the desire for more things break in and choke the word, and it bears no fruit. The seeds scattered on good soil are those who hear the word and embrace it. They bear fruit, in one case a yield of 30 to 1, in another case 60 to 1, and in another case 100 to 1. So what shimmered for you there? What popped out? Oh, the contrast, the extreme contrast in results depending on the ground and the surroundings that, that the seed is thrown in or planted in. I think those definitions and explanations jumped out for me. Maybe they helped me to avoid dealing with the first part of the paragraph where Jesus sounds a little bit irritated about people who won't listen right and won't understand. I don't know if any of you have any more thoughts about that part. Well, I gave Rock a heads up. That's the verse that I not only don't understand, I don't believe it. <laughs> Otherwise, they might turn around their lives around and be forgiven, Jesus says. I wondered if he was just being sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rock, I'm pitching that ball to you. I don't sure. have an answer for it. Um, well, once again, I appreciate the heads up. For me, uh, a lot of it comes back to um, communication. Um, I work really hard so that a five-year-old can get something out of my sermons, but a 105-year-old can as well, um, and everybody in between. Um, and that takes more work to try to make it simple. And I think for a lot of people, this simplicity is to be avoided at all costs. 
And I think those are the folks that he's talking to. Um, my grandmother would describe it as too big for their britches or highfalutin, <laughs> to use a Southern phrase. Um, that, you know, there's, there's folks that are, you know, anything easy is dismissed. You know, I like, it's hard to get better than a good slice of bread with some butter on it. You know, <laughs> you know there's all the high cuisine that you want to have, but when it all is said and done, you know, just bring, give me a slice of bread right out of the oven, you know, with melted butter and uh, that's hard to be. Um, it's the folks that are so caught up in themselves that they think if they are complex, then... <laughs> You know, they've got it, they've, they've arrived or they have it made. And I think, you know, Jesus is saying, no, the, the kingdom of God is not for the most complicated. <laughs> the people who are hearing this, Martin, your um, uh, description of growing up on the farm, I think is exactly what he's getting at. You know, this life is made to be enjoyed. Um, honey on the, you know, honey from the comb, <laughs> grapes from the vine. Um, the, the the simplicities are truly where the real riches are. Um, and that's why he tells these simple stories. Um, and the highfalutin ones aren't going to get it anyways. Um, or, you know, Deborah, you, the, this paraphrase about ye who have ears, let them hear. Um, you know, uh, if you have ears, how do they phrase it? Sorry, I had to turn back. You should pay attention. <laughs> you know? And who doesn't have ears? You know, everybody should be paying attention, but there are folks who just are not going to because they're going to look down their nose at it. Um, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't quite go to sarcasm, but I would say um, it's definitely grieving that there are folks for whom this message is just not going to be received. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen. And that makes sense. That makes more sense. Grieving. The loss of, yeah, the message getting through. He wants everybody to hear this message. Yes. But he's the first to say, you know, you guys are following me and you don't get it? Here, it's, you're making it far too difficult. Well, they can take it on a very surface level. Um, yeah. I've wondered if these different types of soil refer to different people or different aspects of all people. In other words, that I, I have all of these soils in me. Um, hopefully there's a teaspoon of good soil in there somewhere. Um, but I'm at times I'm thorny soil, at times I'm shallow soil, at times I'm the path, you know, that doesn't get it at all. Um, I don't know. And I think um, there are situations in our lives where we come at things differently. You know, our context drives a lot of what we hear or can hear. Our Buddhist brothers and sisters um, talk about when the teacher is ready, or excuse me, when the student is ready. Like I was reversing the anecdote. Uh, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. The teacher has always probably been there. But what's, you know, this wonderful surprise, the serendipity has actually been there all along. You just never saw it. 
you know, yeah. I also picture the the good soil that produces the rich crop is probably the disturbed soil, the one that's been chewed up, the one that's not that would much rather have been left alone and just be what it is, but it's the one that's had a plow run through it and turned and disrupt their life disrupted. Um, and has some good fertilizer sitting on it and has the worms crawling through it. Yeah. You know, what, what seems like grossness is actually where there's an abundance of life. Um, I taught middle school for 12 years and uh, one time I was able to uh, give the graduation speech for our middle school. And I described growing up on the estuary of the James, um, on the Warwick River that flows right into the James River. And it was a smelly brackish river right there next to Fort Eustis. But I talked about how um, that pungent, um, that pungent aroma of going down to the boat dock was also meant that it was teeming with life because that's where the mixture of the the, uh, the runoff from the soil comes um, with all the plant vegetation, which can hide all the young animals. And that's where you know all the um, ocean fish come in to give birth <laughs> before they go back out. You know, it was just full of life and full of uh, all of this uh, energy, which is smelly and gross to the person who doesn't understand. And then I said, that's middle school. <laughs> Middle schoolers are smelly and gross, and it's you know, uh, uh, but it's teeming with life, and that's why it was so rewarding and so rich, um, because every day was a new day, and every lesson was the first time maybe they ever heard it, you know, and they were just so excitable, um, and and and, and rich, um, and you know the people in whom Jesus really makes a difference um, are the ones who just can't help but advertise <laughs> maybe not with their words but just in how they live their life so the people say i want what they've got you know they've got something i don't have um heard a horrifying statistic just this morning um your average evangelical invites 14 people a year to their church the average episcopalian <laughs> invites one person every 31 years I don't know how they got that statistic, <laughs> which means that most Episcopalians don't invite anybody because I'm inviting, you know, 20, 30 people a year. Um, that's just what I do, um, which means there's a lot of folks that aren't um, sharing with anybody the wonderful uh, richness of our church, um, not just this parish, but the Episcopal Church. But, uh, yeah. Um, that's that 30, 60, 100 fold, Martin. Yeah. Well, I think in the end, Jesus wants this to be the parable that you have to get if you want to get all the others. If you can understand this parable, which is pretty straightforward, I think, in Jesus' mind, a um, little frustration there on his part. But if you can get it, and we all should, according to him, then we've got a head start on all the other parables. We can probably find out if that's true in our later reading in a few minutes' time. I just had one uh, question for the two of you. Um, 
because I think, you know, if we get it and we embrace it, and that's all fine and that's all good. But how does one keep the worries and distractions at bay? Because those are the times when it gets diluted and the, and the evil one, as it says here, right away, Satan comes and steals the word. And I think we've all um, experienced those times. Mm-hmm. So the question is, you know, not only what does it mean to embrace, but how do you stay on the road? And I, it must be the question for all of us. It's certainly, I, I ask it of myself plenty. Sure. Um, good question, Deborah. Well, having lived through the last year that we've all lived, I'm not sure there is anything we can do to keep those things at bay. They're going to come. The trick is not to keep them from coming. It's like the tide. It's going to come in. Um, But uh, how do I respond to the tide as it comes in? Do I have the sense to move to higher ground? (laughs) Do I have the sense um, of what my first priorities are? Um, Do I have the sense to remind myself that when I'm up to my neck, that it's going to go back out and it's not going to stay here. Can I hold on to that remember that remembrance of dry ground? Um, even with the tide up to my neck. Um, I, I, I think that that's the calling of God, which is why we have um, our disciplines in our lives, the rhythms of worship, the rhythms of the Christian year, there's a reason why we tell Jesus' birth every year. There's a reason why we tell the crucifixion every year. There's a reason why we tell the resurrection every Sunday. <laughs> you know, it's it's so that we can be, we have that reinforcement. Um, the word remember, I mean, if we look at it etym- etymologically, um, the um, to re, again, connect ourselves, to be a member of, to be a part of, um, and I think that's the, one of the big parts of letting things go, um, uh, is to remember first whose we are instead of what we're going through. Mm. But that's much easier said than done. Yeah. Mm. But so helpful to remember that. And to remember the signposts are what we put around us. And you know, there's an old there's an old expression that I used to have on my office wall. It was a um, it's kind of a, appropriate here because you are what you eat, you are what you see, you are what you read. You become all of those things. It's a Native American phrase when a young boy asks, "Who wins?" the wolf or the, you know, lamb. I can't remember exactly the whole thing, but you are what you put around you. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think you just said that well. <laughs> well, good. Um, just for sake of time, let's uh, forge ahead. I think, Harrison, you have the, the next one. 
Uh, Mark 4.21 and following? Yes. Jesus said to them, does anyone bring a lamp in order to put it under a basket or a bed? Shouldn't it be placed on a lampstand? Everything hidden will be revealed and everything secret will come out into the open. Whoever has ears to listen should pay attention. He said to them, listen carefully. God will evaluate you with the same standard you use to evaluate others. Indeed, you will receive even more. Those who have will receive more. But as for those who don't have, even what they don't have will be taken away from them. Jesus said, this is what God's kingdom is like. It is as though someone scatters seed on the ground then sleeps and wakes night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, but the farmer doesn't know how. The earth produces crops all by itself, first the stalk, then the head, then the full head of grain. Whenever the crop is ready, the farmer goes out to cut the grain because it is harvest time. He continued, what's a good image for God's kingdom? What parable can I use to explain it? Consider a mustard seed. When scattered on the ground, it is the smallest of all of the seeds on the earth. But when it is planted, it grows and becomes the largest of vegetable plants. It produces such large branches that the birds of the sky are able to nest in its shade. With many such parables, he continued to give them word, the word, as much as they were able to hear. He spoke to them only in parables and then explained everything to his disciples when he was alone with them. So what uh, shimmers for you there? What, uh, what do you see coming out of that? I think I just wrote this down and it shimmered for me, but I, I'm not sure it it really is helpful, but it seems in this parable that the rich continue to get richer and the poor continue to get poorer. And I know that's a phrase, but um, it, it, it seemed to be appropriate here. Uh, I, I'm not sure where to go with that. Do you, any of you have any ideas? Well, that same passage, I wouldn't say shimmered for me. I think it more or less kind of shook <laughs> um, because it troubled me. Um, but again, it strikes me as a perspective thing. This is not about what ought to be. It is about what is. Mm. And I find if people... Um, or being stingy with their lives, um, they even lose what they're trying to hold on to. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like if we try to save our life, we lose it. But if we're willing to share our life, give it away, um, we receive it. It's um, that's where I go with that verse twenty-five. Um, That's a better way to go, actually. More encouraging way to go. 
it struck struck me um in the description and yet another description of what the kingdom of God is like. And Jesus said here, this is what God's kingdom is like. And he pictured a, a man or a woman sleeping, waking, sleeping, waking. And all the time that that's happening, this seed is sprouting and growing. And the person sleeping and waking, doing the everyday things, has no idea it's happening. Certainly doesn't know how or why. But the end result is a rich and full, bountiful place or idea. And um, I'm beginning to understand here why parables are the chosen vehicle for what Jesus is trying to say, because um, you can figure out a story. Usually it has something to do with your life if you look for long enough. But there must be a lot of time like there was for this farmer when you're just sleeping and waking and waiting, and the kingdom of God doesn't strike you fully necessarily at the very beginning, but nevertheless, it's richly there. Mm-hmm. One day you'll wake up and realize that you have much more than you thought you ever had, and hopefully you won't wake up and say, whatever happened to that little bit I didn't even pay attention to. It's been here all along. Yeah. That's the reason I have always loved the the spiritual metaphor of the labyrinth. One of the reasons I wanted one here at the church so so much is that's and you can see one on my I've got the labyrinth carpet on the floor behind me. Um, it's a it's a wonderful spiritual metaphor because often when I've been walking a med- a meditation labyrinth in prayer. Um, I'll get a word or, you know, an insight. And then I remind myself that whatever I found in the labyrinth was already in here. I just had to give myself the time and space to, to see it, to realize in that mystery, what has already been given. Um, and you're dead on Martin. Uh, so often we are caught up in the, the physical in the tangible um and what jesus is talking about is something that's spiritual and so to become open to those spiritual realities he puts them in the guise of these very common ordinary things um and instead of transforming um the ordinary into the supernatural um he finds that the supernatural is already in the ordinary (laughs) yeah i don't think it's accidental that he just took the bread and the wine that was sitting there on the table is that do this to remember me. Everybody's got this. <laughs> At least in that culture. Yeah. I think it's such an interesting image of um, how God builds his kingdom through human history. Um, I would sort of think it would be God does this, causes this to happen, sends these people out, does this. It's it's a very clear sort of cause and effect chain of command, like dominoes falling. Um, but he uses a very different image. Um, it's much more mysterious um, and 
in a way sort of illogical or there is a logic that is not our kind of logic. It's a um, like at any given point in time in history, if you ask, how is God building his kingdom right now? How is God building his kingdom right now in the United States? I couldn't really give you a very good answer, but I believe he is. But I can't give you sort of a cause and effect because this happened, this kingdom is going to appear here. It's a lot more subtle and mysterious than that. I wonder if um I wonder if either of you have an idea about what he said to the disciples in private. <laughs> That's really very intriguing. The last line he spoke to them only in parables, then explained everything to his disciples when he was alone with them. And um I just found that intriguing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's an answer, but he certainly trusts his the ones he's chosen enough to actually say, "This is who I am. This is really what's going on." He must have explained all that. Do, has that been discussed much in <laughs> seminary? <laughs> no. No, we just mostly because it's not included, but um, you know, I think a lot of it is was coming back to not just what the stories meant, but why he chose to tell that story in that moment, in that context. Um, you know, a lot of ministry is reading context, not only the room, you know, what people are mentally and emotionally going through but um you know most of the complaints i get are not about me there's some part other part of the person's life that's falling apart and they're projecting that on to me yes. um, sometimes i deserve it and it is me <laughs> but, but a lot of times it's not and um, i think a lot of ministry and i think he was training them for the ministry was teaching them how to read people Mm. and the times and finding a way to speak those eternal truths to the time and to each person as best they can. Mm. So, that's what seminary is about. <laughs> when it's good. Yes. If not, you're arguing over how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. <laughs> and just for time, I'm going to push this ahead. Um, we can unpack that the rest of the night. Yes. The fourth reading, starting with verse 35. Later that day, when evening came, Jesus said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. They left the, they left the crowd and took him in the boat just as he was. Other boats followed along. Gale force winds arose and waves crashed against the boat so that the boat was swamped. And Jesus was in the rear of the boat, sleeping on a pillow. They woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? And he got up and gave orders to the wind. And he said to the lake, silence, be still. 
the wind settled down and there was a great calm. Jesus asked them, why are you frightened? Don't you have faith yet? Overcome with awe, they said to each other, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. One of the repeated things that we're going to see as we go up to the transfiguration in Mark is asking the question, who this is then? Who is this then? Excuse me. Um, and it, it's, it's fascinating as we get further and further into Mark. That's our job with this book. How do we respond to that question? You know, even as close as intimates who were in the boat with him aren't sure who this is, that he can command the wind and calm the seas. Um, and they're asking that question even then. Um, the transfiguration comes as soon as Peter declares that he is the Christ. As soon as the first person who openly says that, it comes out of their mouth. Then we have this full revelation of God um, with the transfiguration. Um, and uh, we're building up to that. But uh, it's very uh, explicitly shown here. And I'm going to answer my own question first. What shimmers for me, it's not necessarily in the text, but uh, the first disciples that were called, four of them were fishermen um, who were on this lake their entire life. Grown men who knew how to sail this lake. And that this storm came up out of nowhere as fast as it did and caught them off guard. Meant that it was one heck of a storm. And it, that it was absolutely terrifying. Um, and uh, the thought that Jesus was sleeping through it, <laughs> I, I think, was equally frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> for them, they're like, don't doesn't he know enough to know he should be terrified out of his mind, just like we are? Um, and he says to them, you know, don't you have the faith to know that I'm in the boat and you're going to be okay? Um, but the word that he uses there, um, and it's a word, not a phrase, if I'm remembering my seminary right, where he says, don't you have faith yet, is actually a single Greek word um, that's often translated, oh, you of little faith. Um, but it's a noun, and he just declares them, you little faiths, like a Native American name. <laughs> you know, and how often are we little faiths? Yeah. And Jesus is just sick and tired of us little faiths. You know, he really wants us to be big faiths. And how does that come out? Um, <laughs> yeah. All right, little faiths, you know, <laughs> here. Just, I guess I have to tell you again. So here it is. What what shimmered for you? What jumped out? What what drew your attention? Well, something really very close to what you just said, but also that this the apostles are really uh, kind of models for who we are. That great things will happen to us in our life and we will we will give god the credit and we will honor you know and everything will be just copacetic and <laughs> and then during a crisis we might just forget what to do first you know and and there's 
This is all about humans together, Jesus in human form. And that is so confusing to them. I can only imagine that they forgot. I wonder what it would be like to have been one of those disciples seeing a human being, a man, with you know the same physical body that I have, the same needs, and um, to really be confronted with this question, who is this person? And to eventually get to the place where this is God incarnate. Um, I think that requires more faith than it does for me sort of having heard, hearing the stories, but not being confronted with a physical human being that needs to sleep and go to the bathroom and eat and, you know, take baths and all of the stuff that we do. Um, and really, I don't know, just coming to the realization that this is God among us. God with us. Um, that's just an awesome thing to me. Um, and it didn't happen, as Rock pointed out, overnight. This was something that they kept coming up against and saying, who is this person that can do this? Um, he speaks with authority. The wind and the waves obey him. He heals people. He feeds multitudes. How is this possible? Um, it's just a stunning story, I think. Um, and all of these little episodes in Jesus' life are kind of like the seeds that he's sowing in the lives of these disciples. Um, these little events that sort of take hold in their imagination and take root and something grows out of that. I love the um, <clears throat> the way this is a real, seems like a real narrative of a dramatic event. No preaching necessary. No discussion allowed. Yeah. Take it or leave it. And it's okay to be overcome with shock and awe. And you'll get it. In some way, you'll get it. Mm. But everybody acted very much in character here. Once they'd woken Jesus up, mm -hmm. they brought the genie out of the bottle in the truest sense. And there was no limit to what they could enjoy and experience. There's a very modern icon um, of this uh, parable. And Jesus went into the boat. And there's a great big pillow he's kind of leaning against, but he's got his brows furrowed like, oh, come on. I was having a great nap. <laughs> and then all the disciples are at the other end of the boat, you know, leaning against each other, cowering in fear. Because um, they're more afraid of Jesus at this point than the storm that's drawn <laughs> around them in the parable. Because um, they're trying to encapsulate the whole story in one, you know, Jesus um, having that type of authority would be terrifying. Um, we're going to see that in a few chapters. Uh, people's responding to Jesus by telling him to get the heck away. Um, 
because they, they don't know what to do with that. And it's scary. Yeah. Well, I'm going to keep pushing us along. Deborah, you want to take uh, the beginning of chapter five? Yes. All right. I'm going to do an intro to chapter five. We are now beginning chapter five. And Deborah, our guest star for the night, is going to take our first reading. Jesus frees a demon-possessed man. Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the lake, to the region of the of the uh, of the um, Gerasenes. 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 Thank you. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs. This man had lived among the tombs, and no one was ever strong enough to restrain him, even with a chain. He had been secured many times with leg irons and chains, but he broke the chains and smashed the leg irons. No one was tough enough to control him. Night and day in the tombs and the hills, he would howl and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and knelt before him, shouting, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. He said this because Jesus had already commanded him, Unclean spirit, come out of this man. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He responded, Legion is my name. Because we are many. They pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of that region. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Send us into the pigs, they begged. Let us go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission, so the unclean spirits left the man and went into the pigs. Then the herd of about 2,000 pigs rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. Those who tended the pigs ran away and told the story in the city and in the countryside. People came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who used to be demon-possessed. They saw the very man who had been filled with many demons sitting there, fully dressed and completely sane, and they were filled with awe. Those who had actually seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man told the others about the pigs. Then they pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. While he was climbing into the boat, the one who had been demon-possessed pleaded with Jesus to let him come along as one of his disciples. But Jesus wouldn't allow it. Go home to your own people, Jesus said, and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has shown you mercy. The man went away and began to proclaim in the ten cities all that Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Powerful story. What jumped out? What shimmered? Well, for me, I assumed that he's in Gentile territory because they're raising pigs. And 2,000 pigs is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. 
And they pleaded with him to please leave because I think they didn't know how to cope with the goodness versus the loss. And I was really struck by that when I, when I thought about pigs and who they must have belonged to. So he was in Gentile territory, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when they crossed the lake, they uh, had gotten to that. And the Decapolis, the 10 cities that it talks about were, uh, um, if I'm remembering right, uh, more Greek in their orientation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a minor detail, but it did hop out at me when I was thinking of the whole thing and mm-hmm. how brave in fact, they were to be there preaching and doing this. It was a real step, a big step that Jesus was taking. Mm-hmm. Now, there would have been a lot of Jewish folks there, mm-hmm. um, but not owning swine. <laughs> right, right, right. right. I wonder what this man's backstory is. Um, You know, what his family of origin was like, how long he had been afflicted. Um, The utter despair of his parents or siblings and, um, and just how helpless he sounded and hopeless and what a, amazing rescue this is um i i don't have any you know great observations about the story other than um just imagine somebody that is this sort of mentally distressed and ill to just be delivered Hmm. um it's a beautiful, powerful story. Um, the um, the piece about sending the evil spirits into the pigs is very, very graphic. And whatever demons are, and whatever continuity we have in the last two thousand years, from this story to our everyday life here now. We probably would sometimes find other words to describe this sort of desperate angst in someone. But I'm betting that people in the psychology and psychiatric professions know exactly how real some of this tragedy can be. And I'm just struck by Jesus' readiness and familiarity and lack of fear in dealing with this. It seems that um, this is such a powerful and such a lively account of a very, very striking event. But to me, it rings true. I I somehow identify with with this story. I don't think I could put alternative words to it, but in terms of human feelings and surprise and awe that Jesus can do such a thing, and we don't often give God that much credit, but... Jesus is inviting us to hear. And then Deborah Martin, you've been in, uh, with me for two of the book studies 
um, you brought up the economic value of all those swine. And um, now, once again, Jesus didn't own the swine. The demoniac didn't own the swine. But the in God's economy, that this man was more important than all that wealth. Mm-hmm. That this man's sanity, not his life, you know, but that his wholeness, the fullness of who he was, was worth so much more than this herd. Um, is uh, just overwhelming uh, the grace that's involved here yeah but this has always been a powerful story for me I, I love the opening of Mark it's just a all these stories, boom, 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 boom. They keep coming out. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? You know, that he can do this too. Yeah. And then another nice thing is this little reference to while he was climbing into the boat, the, the man came up to him. You get the sense that the boat is the continuity piece here and we're going to cross the lake again and who knows what will happen this time. Right. It's a good, good storytelling technique. Very much so. And then, uh, oh, this longing, you've done this for me. I want to stay with you. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, it's not your job. Your job is this. You know, and then he commissions him. You know, this is the first missionary. Mm, That's true. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You know, this is huge. Um, this is your role. You can speak to these folks better than I can. Um, we don't often put it that way. We look at the deficit. <laughs> he had demons in him. Jesus looked at him whole and full and said, put some clothes on, stop cutting yourself, <laughs> and go preach. Yeah. I don't think you ever forget this story when you've heard it. I can remember that as a child hearing this story and learning the word legion and learning that it was lots and lots of demons. And how could all of those demons be there? You know, but they were. So it's real it's a real teaching um parable. Mm-hmm. In a way, this is this kind of healing or deliverance is more powerful than the physical ones to me. I mean, this this man's torment was worse than physical pain almost, I I would say. Um, And it's harder to get at um, bringing somebody out of this kind of affliction into health um, is even more powerful than the physical healings. This kind of healing really inspires um, action for me that in those dark nights, the dark night of the soul, music's been written about it. We all have dark nights. We all have those moments. If we can identify with Legion in any way, Mm -hmm. 
we know that we can pray at those moments and the demons can be cast out. They may return, but in that moment, you can find peace. And I have wondered about whether or not this is a model for Jesus showing that to uh, to everyone. Yeah. The other thing to remind ourselves is if the first few chapters are about who is this, that the demons immediately recognize who it was. Yes. You know, that's uh, that's another learnable. Uh, they pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of that region. They knew that how much authority he had. And this the thing is, it wasn't a Jewish region. You know, we've already talked about how this is um, a Gentile-dominated um, region with the pigs there um, and the Greek names for the cities. Uh, but, there, you know, that even here he has authority. Um, yeah. Once again, just when you start peeling back the layers as you look at them, um, it's even more powerful. And just once again, we're, we're pushing ahead, um, and we're going to jump into that last section. Martin, uh, I think it's up to you. I'm now uh, 21 through the end of the chapter. Yes. Jesus crossed the lake again, and on the other side, a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Jairus, one of the synagogue leaders, came forward. When he saw Jesus... He fell at his feet and pleaded with him, My daughter is about to die. Please come and place your hands on her so that she can be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A swarm of people were following Jesus, crowding in on him. A woman was there who had been bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a lot under the care of many doctors and had spent everything she had without getting any better. In fact, she had gotten worse. Because she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothes. She was thinking, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Her bleeding stopped immediately, and she sensed in her body that her illness had been healed. At that very moment, Jesus recognized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, Don't you see the crowd pressing against you? Yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus looked around carefully to see who had done it. The woman, full of fear and trembling, came forward. Knowing what had happened to her, she fell down in front of Jesus and told him the whole truth. He responded, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace, healed from your disease. While Jesus was still speaking with her, messengers came from the synagogue leader's house, saying to Jairus, Your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher any longer? But Jesus overheard their report and said to the synagogue leader, don't be afraid. Just keep trusting. 
He didn't allow anyone to follow him except Peter, James, and John, James' brother. They came to the synagogue leader's house and he saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, What's all this commotion and crying about? The child isn't dead. She's only sleeping. They laughed at him, but he threw them all out. Then, taking the child's parents and his disciples with him, he went to the room where the child was. Taking her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, young woman, get up. Suddenly, the young woman got up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. They were shocked. He gave them strict orders that no one should know what had happened. Then he told them to give her something to eat. Well, it can hardly resist being something that catches you just at the end there when he said, give her something to eat. It's such a human moment and um, sort of proves that she really is alive and well. Right. That's been longer than most of our other readings, but you couldn't stop anywhere and do justice to any of that. So uh, what, yeah. jumped, what jumped out, what uh, shimmered for you? Well, that, that human nature that came out then in terms of Jesus' instruction, but also I like the story of the healing of the woman. It's very another very human story to me that you would believe that you could just reach out and touch him somehow. And I think at that moment, most of us would have probably done and thought like the woman did. We wouldn't quite know why we reached out to touch his clothes, but we'd probably think that would work. Let's try it. And it did. Mm. That struck me. Great faith. Mm -hmm. Many years ago, Martin and I were in our in our church in Vermont. We're part of a healing group, and um, we um, gained so much knowledge from being in this group. But there were people that really did believe that God would come through you to heal others with the touch. And I can remember one night, and especially, I don't know if you remember this or not, but there was a, um, a, a real healing moment in the group. There had been somebody invited for a laying on of hands. And the description of the energy in prayer that was flowing between these two people as hands were laid on them was very powerful. I'll never forget it. When I was reading this here, I could identify with Jesus recognizing the transfer of power, the healing power of the touch. And that has never personally happened to me, but I witnessed it happening. I'm not sure specific healing went on, but there was definitely a connection that was going on. Mm -hmm. A lot of strong faith in prayer, which you think is un underscores this story. Mm -hmm. It's all about the faith and the belief that you can be healed. So that transfer of power, the use of the whole self, 
you know, I'm not sure we fully understand all that encompasses what makes up a human. Um, I think it's much more than it, ego, super ego, uh, anima, <laughs> however we want to carve it up into chunks. Um, that, you know, when we are, we are, when we are truly living into being in the image of God, there is something beyond words there. Yeah. Yes. I, I too believe in healing, um, that it happens, that I happen to believe this literally happened on the story of Jesus. Um, um, I met people and known people that believe they've been healed, and I believe they've been healed. Um, I've also prayed fervently with for healings for people that never got healed, and I can't explain why. Um, it seems to happen occasionally and not for others, all of that is just, I don't know. Um, um, the, the phrase that jumped out at me um, was, don't be afraid, just keep trusting. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, as I get older and I think back more on life and, and just, if I could summarize a word to my children or grandchildren, it probably would be close to that. Don't be afraid. Trust God. Um, the big mistakes that I've made in my life have been basically out of some sort of fear. And even when things aren't going right, in hindsight, I look back and realize God was still there. He was still working. He has not let go of me. And I could still trust him, even when I couldn't see things working out. And um, um, it's so simple and so hard to do. But um, that phrase really resonated with me. Um, I don't want to sound too much like an English teacher here, but the parallels in the, the story where you have this young woman who hasn't started her menses yet um, you know and she's only 12 years old and this woman who was ritually unclean um, because her bleeding could not stop for 12 years you know the this juxtaposition of the 12 years and the 12 years the bleeding and the never bled you know um, the and both of them women um you know that the uh, that even i all the details of the story make me believe it it's even more true <laughs> cuz you know it's it's almost too perfect um but this idea of um the one and and even how it's it's set up that the the deserving one the girl who had never lived yet Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus is on his way to heal her, and then he's sidetracked by this person who was seen as unclean. You know, and she was 
she was of so little worth even to herself that she wasn't able to ask for healing. She was going to have to take it to get it at all. Um, and that Jesus stops. And in his stopping, the people who were worthy, I can see them just, you know, you know, my daughter's dead because, <laughs> because of this woman. That even then, in, the, in its graciousness, um, in, God, in Christ's gracious, graciousness, he says, you know, don't worry about her. You know, don't put, you know, that old line, don't put a period where God's put a comma. You know, <laughs> I know it seems like it's too late, but have faith. Um, and that he's able to give this gift of not only the healing, but also time and attention. Um, and seeing her as a full, complete person where no one had seen her that way for so long. Um, I think this is one of the most moving stories in scripture. Um, and then he's brought into the the worthy person's place to heal them, heal her. Um, you know, once again, there's just so much richness um, in this short little passage. They just keep coming one after another, these amazing encounters with people in deep trouble um, that Jesus takes care of. Well, like I talked in last week's, you know, this is the comic book gospel. And immediately Jesus did this. And immediately Jesus did that. <laughs> you know, um, in this translation, we don't get that as clearly as uh, in the New Revised Standard Version, another um, more literal uh, translations. But yeah, it's just boom, 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 boom. And from every aspect of life, you know, na natural phenomenon, pers personal as personal could get, these stories based on the people sitting right there at Jesus' feet. Um, yeah. So uh, we begin chapter six, uh, and uh, as a reminder, just uh, Martin and Deborah Leggett are our guest uh, co-hosts with us tonight. Harrison Higgins, our deacon, and uh, I'm Rock Higgins, the rector. And so uh, here we are with chapter six, and Harrison, you've got the first reading tonight. All right. <clears throat> Jesus left that place and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were surprised. Where did this man get all of this? What is this wisdom has been what is this wisdom that has been given to him? What about the powerful acts accomplished through him? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't he Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? They were repulsed by him and fell into sin. Jesus said to them, prophets are honored everywhere except in their own hometowns, among their relatives, and in their own homes, households. He was unable to do many miracle, any miracles there, except that he placed his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He was appalled by their disbelief. Then Jesus traveled through the surrounding villages teaching, and he called 
for the twelve and sent them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no bread, no bags, no money in their belts. He told them to wear sandals and not to put on two shirts. And he said, whatever house you enter, remain there until you leave that place. And if a place doesn't welcome you or listen to you, as you leave, shake the dust off of your feet as a witness against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should change their hearts and lives. And they cast out many demons and they anointed many sick people with olive oil and healed them. What drew your attention in that passage? For me, that um, <clears throat> the phrase a prophet is without honor in his own land has become a very popular um, saying that many people who use would not necessarily attribute to Jesus or the gospel. <laughs> right. But um, I wonder why that is. It must be a common experience. Mm -hmm. And we attribute a house divided against itself cannot stand it to Lincoln. <laughs> I forget that it was from Jesus. Yeah. I do remember sometimes going home from college and being a little bit embarrassed at the lack of knowledge that my mother had about what I was really doing, as I thought. I probably had never told her, so it wouldn't have been easy for me to admit that at the time. But in Jesus' case here, it's pretty pretty um, appalling, as he said, their disbelief. And there's a huge insult that's tucked away in here. Did anybody else catch it? The shaking of dust from their feet? Actually, no. Um, that he couldn't do any miracles? Um, no. Um, isn't this the carpenter? Oh, yes. <laughs> isn't this Mary's son? Mm. In a patriarchal society, mm. for him to be called by his mother and not by Joseph? Oh, I see. Oh, interesting. They're, they're questioning his birth. Um, as illegitimate. Yes. Um, you know, there, so uh, there's, a, there's a double reason, you know, the societal judgment on uh, this. And uh, here's uh, where it's very helpful to see how this, uh, often this uh, passage gets um, read differently. So most Protestants believe that Mary was Jesus's mother and then she had a bunch of other kids afterwards. Our Catholic brothers and sisters t teach that Joseph was married and had James and Jodas and Judas and Simon and the sisters. And then he got remarried to Mary. So that the virgin birth could be, that Virgin Mary would be maintained Virgin Mary, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So there would have been no other births afterwards. So. Um, when it talks about how his older brothers um, and sisters, because um, Harrison, remember last week you questioned about, you'd never seen the passage about Mary and the brothers coming to take Jesus away mm -hmm. because he'd gone crazy, um, that he was beside himself. Um, here's, uh, and which makes a lot more sense. Um, and especially when Jesus is on the cross and he tells John, 
to look after Mary um, because he didn't, his stepbrothers, you know, were not as responsible for the second wife see. as of their own mother. Oh, interesting. Let's see. So um, that's why he, he wants to make sure his mom gets taken care of. Um, yes. I, I, um, this, this really affected me uh, in terms of Jesus not being able to do any miracles. And I thought about, because he was appalled by their disbelief and because of their disbelief. And I wondered if, because we know he could have done miracles if he had wanted to, I wondered if this was um, almost a decision that he made rather than his inability. I found that a, a bit confusing. So that's that was my, that was how I resolved it for myself. What do you think, Rock? Well, the few times that Jesus has, a miracle is demanded of him. And I want to go even back to the temptation stories where Satan is tempting him. Yes, that's to right. To show his authority and power. Um, and then um, in the passage um, that we recently discussed where, uh, um, not uh, in this meeting, but uh, uh, where, you know, people demand a sign. Um, you know, it's, it is always Jesus is able to do the miracles for those who have the faith. Um, that, uh, that miracles come in response to faith, not the other way around. Hmm. You know, that Jesus isn't able to do the healing here because there is no faith here. Yes. Um, the reason why the woman who grabbed his garment was healed is because she was filled with faith. Yes. You know, even Jesus didn't have <laughs> Jesus was not an active participant in her healing. He was the conduit, but the passive conduit of the, of, you know, of the heal, healing coming through the faith of the woman. Um, because only he, he felt the power go out of him. That's all. <laughs> I love that he even asked. Who was it to touch me? You know, looking around. And they're like, dude, you're in a crowd. <laughs> Everybody's touching you. Um, but yeah, it's uh um so that for me, that's why. And the other part of even that, I, I find it fascinating. Um, he was not able to do any miracles there, except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. Right. You know. Right. So that's not really a miracle. You know, he was just this wandering healer. Um, but no, it's 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 hard for us to hear um, that Nazareth is like that. Um, if you go to Nazareth today, um, the whole town is filled with Jesus. I mean, that's where their bread is buttered. But <laughs> it would have Jesus been, hometown. It would have been such a temptation for Jesus in his own hometown. The returning son to be, you know, to be, this is who I am now. Another temptation, and he didn't. He didn't take the bait in that way. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, especially after insulting his mother. Yeah. You know, and him, mm -hmm. and all his brothers. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. we don't like to think of Jesus as being that scandalous, but. In this situation, it was. I, this 
troublesome passage. He was unable to do any miracles. Um, it's, it suggests to me that um, there's sort of a re reciprocity in these healings, that there needs to be a receptiveness there that that opens a channel for the healing to happen. Um, and that is called faith. Um, I, my brain sort of wanders in just what's actually happening when Jesus heals somebody. If, you know, scientifically, as much as you could look at it, what, but not just scientifically, but spiritually, what does that look like? If you could sort of see the forces, um, um, I guess what one of the things that I've pondered with no answer is um, what is faith? What actually is it? Is it a spiritual substance that somehow we have a capacity for? A spiritual energy. Um, 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 and is that spiritual substance the stuff that the physical substance of our world is made of? I don't have answers for that, but I like asking those questions. <laughs> it's the assurance of things hoped for, the essence of things unseen. Exactly. Um, and I think that stuff that you're talking about is that essence of things unseen. Um, a couple of Sundays back in one of my sermons, only reason it even came to mind is because someone quoted me back to me and thanked me for the quote. <laughs> but if you can't conceive it, you cannot see it. And I think faith is being able to see the things that aren't quite there yet. Yes. And that we step into the realness and the wholeness of, and the reality of that thing unseen. Um, you know, even in the, here in the parish, I remember when we first started talking about the Bluegrass Festival. And everybody's like, we can't do something that big. <laughs> That's huge. That's beyond our ability. Um, you know, and then after, you know, we, we kept pitching the vision and pitching the vision and pitching the vision. Um, you know, we were able to pull it off. Um, and everybody had fun. And everybody, you know, before the day was over, it was like talking about doing it again. You know, 2020 gotten in our way, um, but we'll have it as soon as we can have it again because everybody can see it now. It's not a leap of faith anymore. It's a, an assurance of what our, has already been. Um, but that first year was a leap of faith. Back to faith. I um, I can cope conceptually with this by um, thinking about things as being hidden rather than not revealed yet. So as I think about it in my mind, these things that are hidden that I have faith about, they do exist. And they're behind a curtain or they're hidden in some way. I just can't, I can't see them, or maybe no one can see them, but they're there. That helps me a lot. To use the word hidden, right, than unseen. I just thought I'd share that. That's great. Okay. 
All right, once again, just for time, I'm going to push this ahead. Um, and Harrison, I've got you. Uh, oh, sorry, I turn my page back. You're up, Rob. I'm up. You're up. That's right. Verse 14. Mark chapter 6, verse 14 and following. Herod the king heard about these things because the name Jesus had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and this is why miraculous powers are at work through him. Others were saying he's Elijah, and still others were saying he's a prophet, like one of the ancient prophets. But when Herod heard these rumors, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised to life. He said this because Herod himself had arranged to have John arrested and put in prison because of Herodias, the wife of Herod's brother, Philip. Herod had married her, but John had told Herod, it's against the law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias had it in for John. She wanted to kill him, but she couldn't. This is because Herod respected John. He regarded him as a righteous and holy person, so he protected him. John's words greatly confused Herod, yet he enjoyed listening to him. Finally, the time was right. It was on one of Herod's birthdays when he had prepared a feast for his high-ranking officials and military officers in Galilee's leading residence. Herod's daughter Herodias came in and danced, thrilling Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the young woman, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Then he swore to her, whatever you ask, I will give to you, even as much as half of my kingdom. She left the banquet hall and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist had, Herodias replied. Hurrying back to the ruler, she made her request. I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a plate, right this minute. Although the king was upset, because of his solemn pledge and his guest, he wanted to refuse, he didn't want to refuse her. So he ordered a guard to bring John's head. The guard went to prison and cut off John's head, brought his head on a plate, and gave it to the young woman, and she gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came and took his dead body and laid it in a tomb. Wow, that is so gross. And confusing. Well, we already think of Herod as weak, but this other side of Herod really revering John the Baptist was good to hear, but he just couldn't. He didn't have the strength to stand up for his own beliefs. And this is not the Herod of Jesus' crucifixion? Oh, wait. No, it is. Sorry. And this is oh, not sorry. the Herod of Jesus' birth. Yes. Right. Thank That's you for hearing what I meant, not what I said. Right. Correct. This is the Herod of the crucifixion, yes. 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 Yeah, he just, he, he caves in. It's such a telling picture of, of power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And even if you look at how he structures this from a literary standpoint, 
you know, he here's the G, you know, so we have this jump to the side from the main narrative where Jesus's reputation is getting out. And this is Mark's way of shining the light back on the main story, where even Herod, of all people, is hearing about how Jesus is doing some stuff that's unique and new and with authority. Um, and uh, he's paying attention to it. You know, and then we get this, oh, well, it's obviously John the Baptist reincarnated um, coming to haunt you <laughs> and come back to get his revenge on you. Um, uh, and then we get to what happened to John, you know, tucked in here um, since the baptism of Jesus um, that he calls him out, um, that Herod's attracted to him, um, doesn't agree with him, but he finds his preaching entertaining. You know, he puts on a good show, whether I agree with it or not. Um, and if it weren't for um, his stepdaughter, you know, in the Salome, the famous story of Salome, um, that this never would have happened. Yeah. Well, it's a shocking story. And um, I think... <clears throat> Just having heard it a few minutes ago, I have a new feeling for me about this link to the beginning of the reading just then, uh, reading the words again. Herod the king heard about these things because the name of Jesus had become well known. And I read this story of Herod and the beheading as a kind of an awful warning that something bad may be going to happen. Because all we've had prior to this has been these rather Mm. trips across the lake back and forth and kind of shuttle preaching from a fishing boat and cozy villages next to the lake being Jesus's wandering ground and now here suddenly it's reached the political realm and the, the realm where real power exists and there could be trouble ahead that's my dreading feeling knowing the answers I suppose partly but even so the fact that Mark or the writer brings it in now, um, seems to me to lie in that reasoning somewhere. And this definitely is the beginning of the second act. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. getting serious. Because the first act is Jesus is wonderful, you know, and then we have this hiccup at his hometown, and then this hiccup with the with Herod. Um, yeah. Herod has, um, all as we fast forward it, also, though, has this, he knows that he's doing the wrong thing. You, you know in his personality that he's, you know, he had a dream and he shouldn't, you know, hurt Jesus. And then he does. And in this, he had a strong feeling that John the Baptist, of course, was linked to Jesus and that he shouldn't. But, you know, so he's, he's a really important person, I think, to pay attention to for those lessons. How easy it is to be tripped up and do the wrong thing. Mm. But that his, there was a part of him that was intrigued, interested, believed in, in some sort of goodness, believed this really wasn't a bad person. You know, there's, you see that part of her, and it's not that he was like totally ruthless. <clears throat> Just interesting. Very much so. These are very human stories. 
I'm going to push this just because of time. I, I, I know we could unpack this a lot more. Um, Deborah, you want to take the pleading of the 5,000? Yes. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him everything they had done and taught. Many people were coming and going, so there was no time to eat. He said to the apostles, come by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. They departed in a boat by themselves for a deserted place. Many people saw them leaving and recognized them, so they ran ahead from all the cities and arrived before them. When Jesus arrived and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. Late in the day, his disciples came to him and said, this is an isolated place and it's already late in the day. Send them away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat for themselves. He replied, you give them something to eat. But they said to him, should we go off and buy the bread worth almost eight months pay and give it to them to eat? He said to them, how much bread do you have? Take a look. After checking, they said, five loaves of bread and two fish. He directed the disciples to seat all the people in groups as though they were having a banquet on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed them, broke the loaves into pieces and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate until they were full. They filled 12 baskets with the leftover pieces of bread and fish. About 5,000 had eaten. I, I have to say, because I'm so eager to jump in, that for the first time, I, I just felt like this was the first communion service in the world. Mm -hmm. What a wonderful idea. This was the first communion well, before the Last Supper. The words and the process were the same. The miracle followed. And I, it just, it just came right to me as I was reading it. So I was going to jump in. Well, I, for those of us in the liturgical traditions, um, there's the fourfold: taken, blessed, broken, and given, and it has all four of those. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very much so. It's not an original thought, as I'm about to say, but um, <clears throat> there is a connection between this and the um, experience of the children of Israel in the wilderness in the Old Testament. And in some ways, <clears throat> it really sums up that little phrase, God will provide. Mm -hmm. um, if you take it as an illustration for 
a modern life with all our rush and busyness, there's still moments when we get surprised by generosity or surprised by some kind of provision that we didn't expect. Mm -hmm. And we tend to say, even in our modern day, wow, you know, that was a miracle. We use the word glibly, but maybe miracles of this magnitude still do exist. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the names of God uh, is uh, from uh, Abraham and his and uh, the binding of Isaac um, to be sacrificed. Jehovah Jireh, God, the God who provides. We often translate it, God will provide, but the God of provision. Um, that's always been one of my favorites. I know that there is terrible hunger and starvation in the world. Um, um, but I, this story just says to me um, that whatever our sort of small things are that we have, um, that God can make them be enough. It's just, it's sort of a, a metaphor for how to think about your provisions and your life, your assets, um, um, instead of clinging to them and sort of not sharing them. If we make them available to God and for his blessing, there will be enough, not just for us, but for those around us. I think it's interesting that Jesus said to the um, the young girl that he raised, give her something to eat. And to this multitude, it's the same thought. Yeah. And then we remember Jesus by something he gave us to eat. It's, it's this powerful image, um, more than an image. It, might be an archetype or something like that. Um, well, to this day, if you want people to show up for church, you give them food. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's still uh, our modus operandi. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So nourishing, nourishing everybody, feeding everybody, mm -hmm. giving, yeah. being truly human. It's a wonderful thing to do. Mm -hmm. Or to sit around a table some of the best conversations I think we've ever had, except for, of course, these on Zoom, <laughs> <laughs> have been around a table where we're being provided for and mm -hmm. about food. Well, today I was going by uh, Ashland Coffee and Tea, missing our Wednesday mornings after, uh, you know, we would have a, the Wednesday morning Eucharist service and, get you know, that, uh, the pilgrimage down there for all of us to go and share breakfast together. Yes. You know, when we last did that in early March, that it was going to be over a year before we could do that again. I know. Yes. Yeah. Really a big loss. Mm -hmm. The Breakfast Club Eucharist service is what I call it. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> And we'll get there again. Um, yeah. 
well, you can unpack this one, like I said, for days and days and days. Um, any other things before we move on? All right, well, just uh, to wrap it up, um, once again, here's one that we could spend days on. Uh, but Martin, you want to take our last reading for the night? Yes, the, towards the end of chapter six. Yes. Right then, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake, toward Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After saying goodbye to them, Jesus went up onto a mountain to pray. Evening came, and the boat was in the middle of the lake, but he was alone on the land. He saw his disciples struggling. They were trying to row forward, but the wind was blowing against them. Very early in the morning, he came to them, walking on the lake. He intended to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost and they screamed. Seeing him was terrifying to all of them. Just then, he spoke to them. Be encouraged, it's me, do not be afraid. He got into the boat and the wind settled down. His disciples were so baffled they were beside themselves. That's because they had not understood about the loaves. Their minds had been closed so that they resisted God's ways. When Jesus and his disciples had crossed the lake, they landed at Gennesaret, anchored the boat and came ashore. People immediately recognized Jesus and ran around that whole region, bringing sick people on their mats to wherever he, they heard he was. Wherever he went, villages, cities or farming communities, they would place the sick in the marketplaces and beg him to allow them to touch even the hem of his clothing. Everyone who touched him was healed. One of the joys of reading this in big chunks like we're doing is that the demoniac's been busy. He shows up, do they send him away? No. They bring the people in, in droves. You know, the image of uh, the pigs running off the cliff to get away. And here are the image of the people running to him with the sick and those in need of healing. And they have the faith of the woman with the hemorrhaging woman. You know, if I just touch the hem of his garment. Uh, the missionary has been busy. Good point. Yes. There's so much resistance and um, hesitance on behalf of the disciples, but they screamed. They were terrified of the storm and probably of Jesus too. There's an interesting footnote here. Um, that I, I would just wanted to draw attention to and ask for some clarification about he intended to pass them by, to pass by them. Jesus, it says Jesus probably plans to reveal himself in order to encourage his disciples, not taunt them. God passed by both Moses 
and Elijah in desperate moments as a way of strengthening them for what lay ahead. Wow. So I'm trying to I'm trying to imagine was he just intending to kind of walk by the boat and just pass by them and then arrive and then wait for them on the shore? I I, I try to make some sense of that. Rock that's how I understand it. Yes, okay. um, if, if they're making the allusion there to to Moses on the uh, on the mountain, and uh, after he receives the Ten Commandments, the Spirit of God passes by, and God says, "Don't look at my face, but observe, basically observe my back as I go by. Mm. If you see my face, you will surely die." Um, mm. And then Elijah on Mount Carmel, you know, God's not in the whirlwind, God's not in the fire, God's not in the earthquake. But God's in that still small voice that we have this theophany of God coming in the still and quiet um, after all these signs of power. Um, and here, this is unlike the first storm where Jesus is asleep and calms the storm and has authority over the storm. But it's one thing to have an authority of something that's external. For him to have authority over himself where he can countermand physics, you know, even from our earliest days, we understand gravity. Um, there's a wonderful experiment I saw on the Discovery Channel where they took three months olds and they had a tube and they had cutouts on the tube and they would drop a ball and they would just have, a, have an orange ear. And the um, ball would drop and the three-year-old would track it. You know, and they could track the ball dropping. And they'd do it about 10 times until they had the child's attention. And then they would block the tube midway and the ball would drop, but it wouldn't continue on. And the kid would, <laughs> you know, even at three months, you know, this <laughs> pre-literate, pre-cognitive, <laughs> you know, you get the laws of physics. And when Jesus goes against the very nature of the laws that are foundational to everything, and that he can walk on water, that's an upping of authority that we have never seen before. Um, the word that they use here for ghost is a, a word we still know. Phantasm. That uh, you know that uh, this uh, they really did think it was a spook instead of a uh, seeing it as a vision or a sign. Yeah. Yeah. Did I answer your question? Yes, I I, so, I did see that. Yeah, I see. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. It's the whole thing is an incredible story, and especially for. You know, the idea of strengthening them for what lies ahead. We're just kind of getting that precursor, maybe that they have just got to realize what they are dealing with. Somehow they've got to get it, to get the message. Right. Yeah. And we're building to that. Yes. We're That's just it. shy of uh, where that comes in. And, um, the other thing to remember is what just took place. Um, there's not a lot of stories that are in all four Gospels. There's a lot of stories that are in three Gospels, but the ones that make it into all four are very rare. There's only four of those. This is one of them, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, it's big up there um, in, in the miracles of Jesus. Um, and this is the, de, you know, the denouement of that. You know, you thought that was big? Here's something that only the disciples can see, just like with the parables. Here's the, the, the public consumption. But I'm going to show you the real meaning here. Mm. You think feeding 5,000 people is a miracle? 
let me show you this, boys. You know, and I say boys just because of it's the twelve disciples. You know, that that inner circle. Um, yeah. Well, he certainly got their attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rock, do you have any sense in this reading how far into the three years Jesus is in his public ministry? Is this all the first year? Uh, um, it's it's hard to tell with Mark because um, you're taking these. The way I read Mark is you're, you're taking a lot of these scattered stories and you're setting them up um, because if you read it literally and as if it were as if it were all together instead of seeing it as a three-year um, encapsulation. Um, I, I do not, I believe all of these happen. I just don't believe they happen in the order they're given. Right. Because the, the order changes in a few of them in different Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels tell them in different orders. Uh, but also, um, it's, you know, Mark is very intentional on in how he structures things. We talked about that last week. So that we have these bookend type of stories. Um, you know, the, the very highly public next to the very highly personal. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's, it, Mark is very, um, if you read it just as a literary piece, it is as structured as anything else. Um, Matthew and Luke are a little more all, all over the map. Um, mm -hmm. um, but all of this has happened so far in Galilee. And um, it, I'm just struck that this is happening sort of away from the power center of the Jewish faith and the political center. Um, it's out sort of in the boondocks. Right. Um, um, it doesn't strike you as flying below the radar screen because he certainly isn't in that locality, but the confrontation with the Jewish hierarchy, the power structure, hadn't begun yet, really. Right. It. I mean, you can sort of feel it coming in their occasional questions about is it okay for you to forgive sins and do this on the Sabbath? But um, this is sort of the early, giddy, happy, revivalist kind of period, it strikes me. Yes, Jesus is still pitching in the minor leagues here. Um, he hasn't gotten to the majors yet, which is uh, what's coming soon as he turns his face to Jerusalem. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, he or the the writer points out how a lack of understanding and a closed mind is the very last thing you need when you're with Jesus. He's not going to be making it simple, but if you listen and if you open your mind, what incredible things you learn. And they were slow to that, but I think in the end. They got somewhere near that. The other thing that comes to my mind is all of this stuff happened sort of on the street, not in the synagogues. This was this was out where people are living, not in their sort of 
except for the teachings occasionally. Um, pretty much all of this happened outdoors and yeah, open, you know. It was a rural agrarian community. Yeah. That's where life was. Any last words? Everyone who touched him was healed. That's the last line. Everyone. Yeah. Everyone. What a wonderful, what a wonderful line to close on. I think it's interesting that it's everyone who touched him, not everyone who he touched. I don't know what to make of that, but there it is. It sounds like faith. We yeah, like faith. We had talked about a bit ago. Yeah. Well, the theme for our first night was uh, the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This night's theme <laughs> has been faith, yeah. obviously. Yeah. That's what keeps coming up for us. Interesting stuff. Well, this has been a rich time. We've uh, gone uh, a little bit over time, but that's okay. The conversations were good. Deborah Martin, thank you guys so much for being with us. Thank you, Rock. Thank you, Deborah and Martin. Thank you, Harrison. It's enjoyable to be here. Thank you for having us. And thank you for wrestling with scripture with us. Uh, um, this has been a fun way to do it. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Everybody have a great night. You too. And you too. Thank you.